I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. All of us will be exposed to a public hospital at some stage in their lives, either as a doctor or an allied health professional working there, or visiting a patient, or as a patient themselves. But what goes into making up a public hospital? What are the different components of it? How do they work? Why are they so complicated? Well, today we're going to find out a little bit more about it. And it's good timing, as it's the start of the new junior doctor's rotations attachments. So they'll be able to understand more about the public hospital system. Good day, and welcome to Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast. Program born during COVID times to emulate that general chit-chat and banter around the hospital with the idea of educating the medical student and GP alike. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and it's my pleasure to bring Aussie Med Ed to you. And today we're lucky enough to be joined by Professor Jerry O'Callaghan. He holds the position of Executive Director of Medical Services at the Central Adelaide Local Healthcare Network. He's also the Clinical Professor of School of Public Health at the University of Adelaide and has adjunct professor position at the University of South Australia. He completed his degree in Dublin and Ireland and holds a postgraduate fellowship in anaesthesia and intensive care in medicine in Ireland, Australia and the United Kingdom. He's going to talk to us about how a public hospital works, the different divisions of it, and what goes into making up a public hospital so we can get a better understanding of it. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast has been produced, the Ghana people, and pay my respect to the elders both past, present and emerging. Well, I'd like to welcome Jerry O'Callaghan, the Executive Director of Medical Services at Central Adelaide Local Healthcare Network. Welcome, Jerry. Oh, thank you, Gavin. It's very kind of you to have me. It's great having you on board. What makes up a hospital is really quite important. In fact, I don't think I've really understood it. So thank you very much for coming on to explain to what actually are the different divisions and the different aspects of a public hospital. Yeah, so a public hospital or a health network is really like an iceberg. And the doctors and the medical staff in the hospital are like the tip of that iceberg and underneath that is a huge infrastructure to allow the clinical staff, medicine, nursing, allied health and other clinical disciplines to deliver clinical services to the community. But there's a huge range of financial, corporate and other forms of infrastructure that are necessary to support that clinical care delivery. Looking at the actual structure of our hospital, the Central Adelaide Local Healthcare Network made up by my particular one, Queen Elizabeth Hospital, there's such a huge division, and I look at it, and I'm thinking when I'm working, you know, as an orthopaedic surgeon, most orthopods, we like to think we're pretty important, and we think, why isn't there as much attention put towards orthopaedics? And then you look at the makeup of the whole hospital and what goes into it, and you go, no wonder. It's amazing you're actually able to manage it at all. It's like a huge city with inner city, so there's so many different aspects to it. How would you divide the public hospital into the different aspects that, that make up that infrastructure behind the tip of the iceberg? Well, look, that's a great question. And of course, you know, orthopedic surgeons are very important. And certainly if you're a consumer who needs a hip replacement or you've got a broken bone, well, then you are the most important people in the hospital. So in a way, all the services that we provide are extremely important given varied needs of our community and our consumers. It's also useful to reflect on the fact that local hospital networks or districts, as they're called in some parts of the country, uh, have to run a really very wide variety of services. When you think about that, you begin to understand the nature of the infrastructure that needs to sit behind that because we're running services as varied as outpatients, integrated care or ambulatory care pathways to inpatients, to rehabilitation, 
to taking the therapy or dialysis services. So there's such a huge range of services provided by such a wide variety of people that it is necessary to have a complex organizational infrastructure to support that uh, so that those services can be delivered safely, efficiently, and in a timely way for members of the community. So in our particular hospital, we have a range of clinical programs. Prior to that, we had divisions or directorates. Previously, we had medicine, surgery, critical care, and mental health. And now we have a range of clinical programs that really reflect the needs of consumers and really also reflect, if you like, commonality of purpose of a particular group of clinicians. So rather than being a site-based organizational structure, as you might have in other districts, we have a clinical program structure, which is about saying, well, all of the clinical programs, departments and units that are involved in, say, neurosurgery, rehab, stroke, neurology, all of those clinicians are in the same clinical program. And the intent of that is to align business support services, the corporate and clinical governance and other support functions, to align those functions to the clinical service in order that we can support the clinicians in the best possible way. And what makes up those clinical programs? What are the actual, and this is really the clinical aspect of the hospital background, which is which you're the director of, but what are the different areas of the clinical programs that make up the different areas of our public hospital? In our case, we have a local health network and we have a number of different sites, such as the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, the Royal Adelaide Hospital, Glenside, Hampstead. We have rehabilitation services on site at the reactivated Repat Hospital in Door Park. And we also run a, a series of statewide services, SA Pharmacy, South Australian Medical Imaging and SA Pathology are run from Central Adelaide Local Health Network. And then we run other statewide services like Breast Screen, Donate Life and Prison Health. So in those sites, Jerry, there's different areas that are divided up into surgery and medical areas. But what are the other areas of the actual programs that are actually make up the public hospital sites? Well, in addition to surgery and specialised medicine, we also have neurosciences, cancer, which includes haematology. We have critical care and perioperative clinical program, which supports the delivery internally of those critical support services to surgeons and other proceduralists, as well as intensive care. We have what we call acute and urgent care, which is general medicine, geriatrics and emergency medicine. So that's the way our organization has chosen to divide the different clinical functions of our clinical services. So the various different units or departments are aggregated together in a way which makes sense for our organization. So those departments can collaborate on work that they share or work where the patient journey moves that patient through those particular departments for the treatment of their condition, either acutely or chronically. And in those individual departments or programs, there's obviously you're the head of the medical services, but there's also nursing and allied health and support staff as well. And I believe there'd be people being in charge of those units as well. So it's like a horizontal and a vertical division of these different groups, I believe. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So each of those clinical programs has got a clinical program director, who's the person who oversees, if you like, the business and corporate functions of that clinical program. They have a medical lead or a medical director. They also have a nursing and allied health director and a very senior pharmacy director who's allied, who's aligned to that part of the organization. And then that clinical program can deliver services across different sites. They're not site specific. Each of the medical directors reports directly to the CEO. Uh, Obviously, I have a a relationship with the medical leads or the medical directors uh, where we meet regularly and discuss clinical problems 
issues and challenges as they relate specifically to the profession of medicine. It's really interesting when you talk about these programs because there's so many different subdivisions that go into it. For instance, we're in the group of surgery at the Central Adelaide Local Healthcare Network, but orthopaedics is only in surgery one, of which is three different surgical divisions. And surgery one consists of oral maxillary facial surgery, plastic surgery, ENT, a spinal unit, as well as dermatology and the burns unit. So when you consider all the other subdivisions that make up our Central Adelaide Local Healthcare Network, there's a large number of people and large groups of different divisions of medicine and surgery that go into the actual hospital itself. Yeah, so each clinical program, Gavin, is about the size of a community hospital in Australia. So Central Local Adelaide Local Health Network is is one of the sort of 20 or 30 largest health delivery organisations in Australia. And each clinical program or each subdivision of our organisation is about the size of a sort of standard community hospital, kind of 200 bed community hospital. So that's why we created that clinical program structure so that each part of the organization would be of a manageable size and also that the individuals that sit within each clinical program can begin to develop the kind of collaborative relationships with each other that allow them to really work on improving patient care, improving the circumstances in which those clinical teams work. So they're working on on the kind of issues that matter to them as individuals, you know, research, teaching, training. And you mentioned, for example, in, in our Surgery One program, we have ENT, plastics, maxillofacial surgery, craniofacial. Uh, so there's a great example of a group of clinical services or departments who work together very closely to deliver complex surgical services to the community. And they work a lot on head and neck cancers, on tumor surgery and reconstructive surgery for those kind of complex cancers that affect those areas of the body. And those kind of team collaborations are becoming increasingly important in medicine. Also in the non-interventional space, it's equally important. We have similar collaborations between pharmacy, immunology, rheumatology, clinical pharmacology, oncology and delivery of very complex drugs and other form of chemotherapy to consumers. So as our treatments become more complicated and more effective, the way in which they're delivered to consumers also becomes more complex. So the organizational structure in, in which clinicians work needs to support their needs and the needs of consumers. That's one of the reasons why we have moved to this clinical program structure in, in Central Adelaide. On top of all this as well, there's also both of us are involved with the University of Adelaide and you've got two university appointments. How does the university structure fit into the running of a public hospital and how, I mean, I'd like to think of it as a symbiotic relationship and they help each other out. How do they actually work together and how is that important for both areas? Well, it's so important for both organisations, Gavin. And I'm glad you asked me this question because the university obviously is really important in terms of providing the expertise in teaching, training, in assessment of efficacy of knowledge transition, providing the opportunity to collaborate with other scientific disciplines outside of health, such as engineering, mathematics. So the university has tremendous depth in these areas and also in research and research methodology. But obviously, the action, if you like, happens in the public hospital in terms of either doing the research and clinical trials or assessing the efficacy of that research in terms of translation into practice or evaluation of more broader models of care. So collaboration between the two is really important. 
The way it works is, at least for the discipline of medicine, you have largely two groups of people. You have people for whom being a clinical academic is a job. They work for the university and spend time, if you like, in clinical care, working in our organization. I describe those individuals as for whom being a professor is their main job. Then we have people who are clinical title holders who may be very, very accomplished researchers. But for those people, their main job is looking after patients. Doing research may be a really important part of that, but they work for the Central Adelaide Local Health Network and have their work, if you like, and their collaborative work and their achievements recognized by the university by having a clinical title holder position within the university. And that is an ongoing relationship within the School of Medicine or within the Faculty of Health Sciences in the university. You also have discipline leads. And those are the individuals, if you like, who represent the university in ongoing conversations and discussions with the health network around, you know, how we allocate resources, how we begin to focus on particular areas, what improvements can be made in relation to research translation. So it is really an ongoing relationship. And we've been very excited by the establishment of the Adelaide Health Innovation Precinct, which is a formal collaborative network between SAMRI, the South Australian Medical Research Institute, and the University of Adelaide and the University of South Australia, I understand, are going to join that shortly. And then that also the, the Central Adelaide Local Health Network and the Women's and Children's Health Network are all getting together to facilitating the clinical researchers that work across the precinct, but really creating a very deliberate, progressive structure in order to formally support that research. Looking at the whole program, thinking about it in preparation for today, I conceptualise it as a virtual city within a city, but also obviously in South Australia, we're lucky enough to almost have a physical city now within the city as well. What sort of the numbers of people make up work either through the medical division of the universities or through the hospitals themselves and the public hospital situation and their outreach? What sort of numbers of people are employed or directly involved in it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and to be completely honest, it's often harder to answer that question than you might think, because obviously it's such a big organization, people move in and out, and we have a significant number of learners in our organization who are trainees, training to become medical specialists. We also have significant numbers of nursing students, allied health, pharmacy, and so forth within the organization. Broadly speaking, uh, Central Adelaide Local Health Network has about approximately 16,000 employees, and of those approximately 2,000 individuals or doctors, and that's about 900 junior doctors of various different descriptions. Some of them are fellows, some of them are advanced trainees, some pre-vocational trainees, interns, and then the remainder are specialists who can be either staff specialists or visiting medical officers. It's a large number. What sort of percentage of South Australian budget goes toward the supplying just the Central Adelaide Local Healthcare Network? It's roughly between 50 and 60% of the public hospital budget in South Australia is delivered through the Central Adelaide Local Health Network. It sort of depends on how you count it, but it is a significant amount of it. The important thing, I guess, to understand is that activity, if you like, is commissioned by the health department. So the health department buys activity from the local health networks in order to deliver services to the community. So if we take a step back, and um, when we talk about health planning, meeting the needs of the community starts by understanding population health and understanding the population of South Australia and then what services that population is going to need over time. And then given the different structures that sit within our state, we have obviously the different local health networks, such as the Northern and Southern Local Health Networks and the Children's Local Health Network. 
And then obviously, Callan includes statewide services. So the Department of Health and Wellbeing oversees the delivery of health services to the community and then commissions, if you like, that activity from the local health networks. And that's the way that that process begins. And it changes from year to year with, if you like, a self-monitoring, evolving conversation with the department, uh, monitoring the services we provide, uh, monitoring the the value, if you like, the community gets from the services that are commissioned and paid for by government. That's a fairly large undertaking. We've obviously been talking about the medical divisions too, but also there's the corporate services that need to be required to provide management for the hospital and infrastructure as well. What makes up the corporate divisions of a public hospital? And Perhaps using our hospital again as an example, what are the main corporate aspects of a public hospital? I used to always think of them as hospitality, but I don't think it's used those words anymore, I believe. Yeah, no, again, it's, it's very complicated. So you have, you have the management of facilities. So, and as you can imagine, managing facilities is also managing the, if you like, the equipment and the stock that must be in those facilities in order to deliver services to the community. So one of my colleagues, Elke Krop, who is the executive who oversees all our facilities across the various different sites and services we provide in, in South Australia, has been absolutely instrumental in making sure we've had enough PPE to manage COVID. So when you think about just managing the facilities, it's not just managing the facilities, it's also managing all of, if you like, the security functions, all of the processes that mean that, you know, all of the the things that we need as clinicians are where they need to be in order for us to do our job on a day-to-day basis. So one aspect, if you like, of our business support services is around managing facilities and everything else that that includes, air conditioning, power, all of those really important, you know, physical infrastructure support systems. And then we have the corporate services in terms of managing information. So health informatics, understanding all of the information that we need in relation to patient care, in relation to accounting, in relation to costing, finance, spending, in relation to salaries and wages. Uh, So that's one aspect of, you know, there's health informatics and there's finance. Then you also have a range of other issues where you have to have functions such as risk management, risk assessment. So we have a whole system of measuring and understanding risk. It might be useful to reflect at this point that the health network has a governing board. So what oversees our health network is a governing board, which has a chairman and a number of members who are experts in various different aspects of, if you like, clinical governance, corporate governance, and represent, if you like, the interests of the community to make sure that our organization is delivering care to the standard which meets the expectations of community the expectations of government within the contractual arrangements which have been agreed, and also the broader policy and legislative settings in which healthcare organisations exist in Australia, remembering that approximately 45% of funding for public hospitals comes from the Commonwealth government and 55% from state government. So the board is separate to the SA Health itself. They run parallel or underneath the SA Health or just supervise the running of the actual individual local healthcare network. Is it a different board for different local healthcare networks? Yeah, each local health network has a board. The boards are appointed by the minister. Members of the boards are appointed by the minister. And they have personal responsibilities once they agree to take up these appointments to make sure that they if you like, the responsibilities and the obligations that they sign up to are effectively executed. So the health department agrees with the hospital to deliver services in a particular way. 
there are obviously clinical standards which have to be met and which are we might come back to that there are clinical standards that have to be met and then there are financial conditions which have to be met and the board oversees through the chief executive officer of the local health network who's professor leslie dwyer that we deliver those services to the standard that has been agreed and under the conditions that has been agreed between the department and the local health network and that's that's called a service level does the board directly appoint these CEO or was that appointed by the minister? Those executives are generally appointed by the health department, but it would be, if you like, the process would be a joint appointment between the board, uh, the minister and the chief executive of the Department of Health and Human Services or Health and Wellbeing. As well as providing good services to the community and the patients they treat in the hospital, other priorities might be Aboriginal engagement and Indigenous health, as well as sustainability. How do we make sure these are provided for in the hospital or at least made a priority in the provision of our healthcare system? That's a great question, Gavin. So a member of the board must be an Aboriginal person. We have a department which is dedicated to supporting Aboriginal people who are consumers in Callum. We also have, obviously, that department is led by and employs Aboriginal people and increasingly we have uh, healthcare practitioners who are uh, Aboriginal people who are working within our health network shoulder to shoulder with uh, other healthcare providers to improve our ability to look after Aboriginal people and meet their specific needs. And we have a reconciliation action plan. We have a whole range of you know policy and procedure documents and processes that we have evolved over the last number of years in consultation with our Aboriginal consumers and community-based organisations and healthcare workers. So there is certainly a significant part of the organisation with the appropriate focus. I'd also like to just point out that we also have a large number of non-Aboriginal people who are very strong advocates of improving the care we deliver to Aboriginal people. And many of those approaches involve doing research. And some of our research now, particularly in the renal area, is being led by Aboriginal people. So we have Aboriginal consumers who've become researchers now leading research on the best way for us to deliver care to Aboriginal uh, people and to communities outside of Callan or in the country. And many of our clinicians also spend time on country going to do outreach clinics and delivering those services. And if you're interested, they would love to bring you along. They go to Port Augusta, they go out into the wildlands. So uh, it's a, it is an area of, uh, for which our board and our CEO have a deep commitment. And I think we're really making some significant improvements. And we also are working in collaboration with Samri. That certainly could be a good idea for a mobile podcast and something to consider for 2023. What about the sustainability aspect of the public hospital? I had figures where the actual public hospital systems and the actual healthcare in itself produces a large percentage of our carbon footprint and is actually a major cause of pollutants. Can you tell me how hospitals in general tend to address this? That's an area which is clearly extremely important to everyone, but particularly to our younger generation of clinicians across the different disciplines. And they're making it clear that, you know, they want to work in an organization which has a focus on sustainability. There's a huge amount of waste that comes from health. And Elka Krop, who's our um, executive uh, director, who deals with all of our facility management and organizational issues in that regard with respect to infrastructure, is really interested in doing work in this space. It not only relates to the waste that comes from packaging, uh, the power um, utilization in relation to the way we run services, it also comes from the investigations that we do uh, and from the treatments that we 
choose. So individual clinicians can begin to understand how if we manage, if you like, our practice in a way which has some regard for sustainability, there are changes that we can make, all of us can make to our individual practice. It might be as simple as using one less syringe when you're, you know, in my case, I'm an intensive care specialist when I'm putting in a central line or, you know, uh, using fewer needles or whatever it might be because each of one of those is associated with packaging. But it's also to do with them interventions such as CT scans, MRI scans, all of those have got a carbon cost. So it is an area, I think, where we will have future discussions, but uh, the leadership will come from the next generation. I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. Well, that leads me into my next question. Uh, how do the interns and junior doctors fit into the public hospital network? What, what's actually involved in those doctors starting off training and getting uh, finishing their medical degree and starting as an intern? And how are they supported throughout the whole process? That's also a really important question, uh, particularly for our listeners. So that process starts before medical students become doctors, before they qualify with the transition to internship here. And the term supervisors and the year supervisors in the School of Medicine are very involved in that, as is the Dean of Medicine. And in Central Adelaide, we have a medical lead for postgraduate medical education, who's Professor Joe Thomas. Uh, she oversees the various different directors and supervisors of clinical training and also manages the relationship we have with SAMET, who accredit all the various different rotations for education and training of junior doctors. Broadly, there are three groups. There are interns, pre-vocational trainees, and then once trainees are selected and accepted into various different clinical training programs, they become advanced trainees. And then we have a number of people who work in service, uh, registrar positions across the organization, but largely they're very aligned to specific departments and to the processes which apply to that particular discipline. So you would obviously understand that very well in relation to orthopedics. So all of the interns have a director of clinical training. And they also have a medical education officer who's um, someone with expertise in, in education and in the clinical workplace and processes. And they have a, a very structured training program. Uh, they have regular assessments uh, with their term supervisors uh, and their processes monitored and supported uh, over the course of their internship. Uh, and then they almost qualify for an internship to then go on to become either general trainees or basic physician or basic surgical trainees. And then they're allocated into accredited training rotations uh, for the next part of their journey before moving into advanced training roles in various different disciplines, such as emergency medicine, intensive care, anesthesia, radiology, whatever it might be. And then at the end of those processes, or those training periods, people have an exit exam. And after that exit exam, individuals can practice in fellowship roles and often people go overseas for those fellowship roles people come from other places to us and uh, for various different fellowship roles in a range of different disciplines to learn more advanced skills and practices with some a degree of sub-specialization at that point is that a reasonable overview yeah it's a very good summary of it all and the actual support uh, the training or in the service they get when they started in a, in a public hospital where 
obviously every hospital will vary. I presume nowadays it's quite structured and really you get a lot of support in, in actually starting the process as well. There's always support available for them along the process. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would like to acknowledge really all the, you know, clinicians in our network for whom education is such a core value and, and the level of commitment to education in our uh, hospitals and services is very high. So people are not necessarily paid or given time to do that. They may have non-clinical time that they choose to allocate to being a term supervisor um, and then doing all the assessments and the paperwork that's associated with making sure people are progressing satisfactorily in their career path. There's also a lot of mentoring of training doctors involved in that process. And obviously, you know, it's a really long relationship. I mean, you would know from your uh, long-term commitment to education and training and working in the public system that you will see people who will be an intern and then an RMO and then a registrar and then a, a fellow in your service over a period of, you know, six, seven, eight years. So it is really a, a very strong t- tradition in medicine and, and in our organization to making sure people progress and become specialists, mainly, and other people become primary care specialists in the community. But I think the support people get during that journey is very significant. There also is an underlying process around quality assurance, around governance of that medical education process, there is a part of the Department of Health called SAMET, which makes sure that the rotations are accredited, monitored. We have regular visits. And then similarly, we have regular visits from the various different colleges who come to make sure that our organization is meeting the standards that are expected uh, by the colleges. Uh, and when they come, they, you know, they review our facilities, they talk to the trainees, they talk to the, the specialists in the various different departments, they come and they talk to the executives and the CEO, and they talk to me, and they raise issues if they feel that you know, things are not up to scratch. So there's a huge infrastructure, again, associated to medical education and training, as there should be, because you know, we really all want to know at the end of your training period that you're able to deliver good care. Uh, that you've been well supported on that learning journey because it is challenging. And at the end of it all, you've got the skills uh, and knowledge that you need to be an effective medical specialist for your career. Yeah, I've certainly been part of the accreditation committee for the AOA, uh, Orthopedic Association, in the past. And I do know, and I presume all the colleges and other areas are the same, it's all about supporting those doctors coming, those junior doctors coming through and making sure they've got the support and facilities to actually be able to learn as well as progress and also therefore provide services in a, in a good fashion as well. Yeah, and, and that's not something that occurs in isolation. I mean, all the disciplines, you know, nursing, allied health, pharmacy, contribute significantly to medical education. And of course, the organization, if you like, provides the infrastructure uh, and the facilities uh, for in which that education occurs. So I think it's a real team effort. Uh, and I think it's something that we all should be very proud of. Now, I know how busy you are as an executive director of medical services, as well as an intensivist working in quite a busy schedule. How do you manage to fit it all in? And what advice would you give to someone considering taking on a management type role? I think it's really important, firstly, for clinicians to be involved in healthcare administration and leadership, research, education, training. These are really core activities in the way the services are delivered to the community. And if we are not delivering services in the right way to our consumers, then inevitably clinicians become dissatisfied and become frustrated. So for that reason, I got involved in uh, in medical administration, particularly around the time we were changing the shape and function of our organization to make it more suitable for our consumers and also to provide a better 
employment experience for our clinicians, which is really important. I mean, I view my customers as being the uh, all of the doctors that work in Callan and their customers are the consumers and, and patients who come to Callan for care. So if I'm doing a good job, then and then my customers, the doctors, will be in a position to do a good job for their consumers, for their customers. So that's the way I think about it. It is a real challenge, and I think it's very important if you become involved in healthcare leadership administration that you continue to practice. That's my view. Not everybody shares that view. Uh, but I think if you don't, then you really fail to see the results of the various changes and efforts around organizational processes and structures uh, you, you can't really make a good assessment of whether they're working or whether they're not. You also have the privilege of spending time with with consumers and their families, uh, and that obviously is you know is core business for any any clinician. And that really keeps you. I think it keeps you focused on what's important. It keeps you aware of what your values should be and how your values should reflect those of your consumers in the community. And it also allows you. To privilege of spending time with other clinicians and, and other disciplines. Certainly, you, you'll find out what's really going on from, you know, the nurses and uh, allied health practitioners and medical students and interns. I mean, they, they really know what's happening in the organization. So uh, I think it's very important that leaders get to spend time uh, delivering care. Well, that's fantastic to hear that. Yeah, I always tell the medical students, I think we're very lucky in medicine that our biggest reward is the satisfaction of seeing a patient do well or the enjoyment of working in an environment where there's lots of other different people working with you so you can actually get exposure to p different areas of life, different jobs. So I think certainly it's fantastic you put your time and effort into doing these, this leadership position. And look, I really thank you very much for coming along to explain the public hospital system to us. Is there any other thoughts you've had before we finish up? I know just to say that I, I think one of the, I mean, it's a privilege for me to, to be in my current position uh, to work with so many uh, different clinicians from different disciplines right across the organization. And I've learned so much, uh, as you mentioned, that you have yourself from doing podcasts with various different specialists and experts who have, you know, different areas of expertise. I guess I would just like to reflect that I think we are very lucky in Australia to have a, a very well-resourced and effective public health system. We are going through a tough period right now following COVID with a lot of unplanned care. And I think it's really important that we not only um, allocate time and effort to learning about our individual disciplines, orthopedics, intensive care, infectious diseases, but also we learn more about, you know, how to be operationally effective, what kind of systems and processes are helpful to all of us if we begin to learn uh, about how an organization will work most effectively, how to work in teams how we develop more effective non-technical skills around communication and situational awareness and how we develop into leaders. So I think spending some time developing those kind of skills will really equip people for a more satisfying career and will help them become more effective doctors. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much, Professor Jerry O'Callaghan. Thank you very much for giving up your time and explaining how the public hospital system works and all the best for the new year. Thanks very much, Gavin. I hope you have a really good holiday period. Thank you. Same to you. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'd like to remind you that the information provided today is just for general medical advice and does not pertain to one particular medical condition or one way of treating a particular condition. If you have any concerns about information raised today, please do not hesitate to contact your general practitioner for further information. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please don't hesitate to give us a like or tell your friends about it or give us a positive review. 
We look forward to presenting another podcast to you in the near future on a different topic. Until then, stay safe. Thank you very much.